This is the Training Talks podcast with your host Richard Kelly of RK Fitness and Lawrence Davis of LXD Fitness. So the other day I met my mum for lunch and in conversation she mentioned to me one of her friends had been recommended Slimming World by the NHS. So I thought well, that's, that's odd. Why would they why would they recommend Slimming World? I was thinking is that is that just that GP? She said no. I think it's the whole of she lives in Hertfordshire, the whole of Hertfordshire. I'm thinking, well, that's, that's odd. They can't, they can't do that. Like, why Slimming World? Why not Weight Watchers? Why not, you know, someone who's actually qualified in nutrition? Why, why Slimming World? So I had a look. Apparently, NHS England recommends Slimming World to all individuals who need to lose weight. What I can picture now is the lobbying issues with Parliament and that someone from Slimming World lobbied to get the NHS and the government to buy into Slimming World because how does that make sense a private company is now outsourced for all weight loss when ultimately they're not even the best weight loss tool no I mean the thing is is, and I'm sorry to burst anyone's bubble who uses Slimming World who's listening but Slimming World Weight Watchers all of those things are considered a joke within our industry yeah right so on our side when we're talking about nutrition that would never even come up if someone came to me and said I need to see a nutritionist about something I'm sending you to someone who's a qualified dietitian. Not Slimming World. Yeah. And I mean, also, I'm pretty certain as well, Slimming World, uh, Weight Watchers, all these things, have their own special line of products, and those products are what they sell to people to stay within yeah. whatever their targets are. I don't think they even use calories because they determine calories are too complicated. At a certain point, you need to be held accountable for your own actions. Yeah. No one else can be accountable for what you put in your mouth. It may be hard. I know, like, on a lower income, it's even harder, but it's not impossible. You just need to take the time to do it. Absolutely. And I think as well, like, we all sort of know what constitutes good food, right? No one's going, oh, well, this chocolate bar, this, you know, that, that must be good for me. Yeah, you no know, one is. You know the broccoli is the right option, right? You know that the chicken breast or you know the whatever is better than the ready meal lasagna we all instinctively we we do know these things right and the thing is i think half the time when people come to these things they want some sort of magic permission to go and eat some random muffin in their diet and still lose weight and so all these things do is they give you this point system instead of calories because then you go well i can eat this muffin because it's only 30 points but then i'm not going to eat this sausage because it's 100 points even though the sausage is probably better for you than the muffin. That makes me think about the term empty calories and the fact that what essentially they're doing is they're saying that the muffin's better for you than the sausage. However, the sausage has a lot of fat in. However, the protein in that trumps the muffin every single time. Yeah, and I mean, the sausage isn't a better option than, say, a chicken breast or... But it's a better option than a muffin. Yeah, and that's the thing. So all you do is you end up with these these systems whereby all these people know all these point numbers for all these different things and they're really not given anything sustainable long-term because they don't understand nutrition. No, nope, but that's the whole point for them is trying to keep people in their system and not actually empower people. My whole standpoint with most things is I want to empower people to train. Yeah. I want them to stay not because they're tired and they don't know what else to do, I want them to stay because they know that I can always get them to the next level. Yeah, that's exactly the same. I mean, 
you're, I'm far better off with people who understand and have knowledge about what, what I'm doing than I am with people where they're just blindly following along because blindly following along means we never go anywhere because I get to a point and I'm repeating the same things all the time and they don't understand the relevance of it. That's why when I think about NHS and I think about their strategies towards uh, weight loss, I think they've got it so wrong. You've got all these council gyms. We said this before, all these council gyms. You've got all these trainers and you haven't tried to utilise any of them to help with obesity. No. When, when the key thing is for most people, it isn't so much what they eat, it's the lack of movement. There are issues, a lot of issues, I think, around two things. So one is education and, and the way food and exercise are treated at school. Because yes. there's too much focus on competitive sport, Right. Because yeah, competitive sport is important, it plays an aspect. But being just generally healthy and moving and enjoying moving should be a priority for a lot longer for kids. It seems that as soon as you hit secondary school, that's it. To have a sports team or nothing. Yeah. And then with nutrition, you you know, you go to these, you know, food classes and what, what do you really actually learn? What benefit does it give you? Does anyone actually sit down and talk to you about the value of protein, the value of carbohydrates, the value of fats and treat it like an actual science which it is they don't they show you to make a sandwich it's not even just that it's a psychology of the science and understanding how to use that base level of science and apply it to your psychology and what works best for you because yeah. that's that next layer of complexity which makes it hard for you to have you know one system and say everybody needs to follow this one system it just doesn't work no and th this is I mean going back to the slimmer world thing this is part of that issue because you know, they, I'm fairly certain they do those weigh-ins at the beginning and then they talk about an aspect of weight loss and then, you know, you obviously you follow your plan in the week and then you go back and do the same thing. But you do a weigh-in once a week, right? But there's so many other factors that come into that weigh-in. What makes me laugh is, whose stupid idea was it to do a weigh-in every week? I think originally from Weight Watchers, which was set up in America, and it's actually about social pressure. So it's not about it being the right time period to see significant change. It's just about the peer pressure and creating that community environment. Even though for most people that community environment with the pressure of a weigh-in will actually be detrimental. So effectively, because it's a group that meets once a week, they have to do once a week weigh-ins. Because it's something where they're encouraged to come with a friend and bring a friend, you create a buy-in. So because someone actually knows you at the meeting, you get pressure from someone outside of the classes and then you obviously have pressure in the classes of the group around you and being seen to be someone who is doing well. So that pressure means you're sort of almost forced to lose weight each week because if you don't, questions are asked about why you didn't. I wonder whether they factor in fluctuations for menstrual cycle in women. I don't think they do anything on that at all. I don't think they cover uh, weight loss because of sickness. I don't think they cover weight loss because you've drunk less water that day or weight gain because you've drunk more water that day. None of that stuff factors in. I can see what the NHS have done. Someone's come along and offered them a lot of money to, to refer their clients there. And they've done so because the success result is probably, in terms of weight loss, mildly successful. So it's a box ticked and then it's done. There's a lot of things that need to be changed and Slimming World should be one of them. Yeah, Especially I, this affiliation with the NHS. I can't believe it. To be honest, it's outrageous because... They should not be pushing an affiliation that doesn't even use calories as a basis of weight management. That's true. 
guys for those who haven't rated and reviewed us please do so if you're able to rate and review us then you can actually start to send us stuff send us questions that you may have about fitness or any queries or any topics that you may want us to talk about because ultimately we're here to help you guys better understand the world of training So on the podcast today, we're discussing, can you out-train a bad diet? So what I find interesting about this is, what is a bad diet? So a lot of what we've heard recently since you know last couple of years has been about going vegan, being more plant-based, having less red meat. We've also been told, go low sugar, make sure you have good fats in your diet. All of these things have come up. And I think what's happened is a lot of people have got confused about what actually constitutes bad and what constitutes good. Right, so there's certain things that I think or I hope everyone should know are bad things. So I'm going to give you an example here. What would you say was your average daily calorie consumption sort of number that most people would, would sort of aim for if they're trying to be healthy? Probably 1,500. Yeah, so maybe, maybe up to 2,000 depending on the size of the person, right? Yeah, but then isn't it 1,500 for females and more like 2,000 for males? Yeah, it's, it's around about that. So call it, well, let's, let's meet in the middle. Let's call it 1,750. I like it. Okay. So, if you were to have a McDonald's breakfast, you know the McMuffin thing, yes, hash brown, all that stuff, right? If you were to have half of a Pizza Hut pizza for lunch, and then a Chinese meal takeaway with a few beers, that would be 3,888 calories, which is over two days worth of calories. That's obviously a bad diet. I think most people would look at that and go, I wouldn't do that. But what people don't take consideration for is how bad is bad, okay? So I'm gonna give you another example, right? This different context. Antonio Conte, the new Tottenham manager, has banned pizza, ketchup, mayonnaise, brown sauce, and fizzy drinks from Tottenham's training facility cafeteria. These are professional athletes. For your average person, some of these things are not that bad. I haven't got any clients where I've banned them from having ketchup, but as a professional athlete, you can't be having these things. But you've got to think about it. They're more in the dark ages than other sports. Yeah. You know, football, technically, you think about, okay, you just need to be good at kicking a ball. But the nutrition, as you get better and better, plays a big part. And for him to do that, when he came and had a look at their diet and what they were allowed to eat, he was probably horrified. Well, yeah. I, it turns out I am. If you banned pizza, how much pizza were these guys eating? What? This is my point, is that these are professional athletes, right? At some level, they should go, right, probably shouldn't have pizza every day. But here's the thing. That goes back to the title of the podcast. Can you out-train a bad diet? And they can. I, I would argue they can't currently, but... Um, Why well, could they playing so badly? Yeah. I agree, but the performance could be totally unnutrition-related. There's other aspects to this as well. Going with our standpoint... They can out-train a bad diet because they're not fat. But also their diet, their bad diet isn't actually that bad. It, we don't know. We, we don't know. E even if you were to... Because, I mean, the cafeteria thing, that means they eat pizza once a day because they're having, they, they have lunch there, right? Wait, no. They don't, they don't have breakfast and dinner there. They don't, they're not there three times a day. But it's a training facility. How much of the day are they there? About four hours. How do you know? Because typically they're there from 10 a.m. till 2 10 to 2. Or 9 to 1. Are you serious? This is... You have a training facility which has all the food you need, all the recovery you need, all the training you could do, and you're there 
for that small period of time. The, the injured players are there for longer because they need the rehab and physio stuff, so they're they're there longer. But the the other the interesting thing with with when the interesting thing when lockdown was going on was all these players were at home and they didn't know how to cook. So a lot of the teams had to put on cooking lessons for the players to learn how to cook nutritious food because they didn't know how to do it. And to be fair, right, if you're leaving home at 16 and you go into the academy setup full time, you you leave home, you're with a host family who basically look after you, they cook food for you. And then when you when you make it, if you make it, you're 17, 18 years old. You make more money than anyone in your age group. You can afford to buy your own house or rent whatever you want. There's no point at which you've learned basic culinary skills because you've left home early and everyone's always done it for you. Yeah, but then you'd have a chef. No, we would have a chef. They don't spend the money on that because they just get a takeaway and then they get a wife and then it becomes the wife's domain. But not getting off the point too much. I feel like football is a sport where these guys, like 80% of them, aren't really serious. They're not, they can't be serious about their sport to the level that, you know, the greats were. Because if I was, even if I was a semi professional footballer, I'd be there from 6 to probably 4 5 p.m. I would, I would train, I would eat, I would get therapy, I would train again. I would eat. I'll get therapy. I'll train again. Three. I'll get two to three sessions in with therapy every single day. Lawrence is aiming to be Lionel Messi. Yes. What really baffles me about football is, you know, the culture of football, the amount of injuries you guys get, and now when you look at your practices and habits outside of the main game, this is a perfect example of you guys not taking it seriously. So to give you a quick example, Liverpool started using FMS in about 2014 and they were talking about it as being innovative in the sport <laughs> so for the listener FMS went obsolete in about 2012 2011 from most personal trainers uh, repertoires for the listeners that don't know it's a system of tracking and improving someone's general mobility anyway let's get back to the point about diets because that's this is the yeah, elite, really gone off. Really well this gone is off. the elite athlete end but let's talk about regular people so going back to my example of the McDonald's breakfast pizza pizza Chinese takeaway that was 3,000 wasn't it yeah 3,800 so almost 4,000 that's obviously an extreme example right but most people don't tend to notice when they uh, over you know they have like two glasses of wine what impact that has on their diet right because two small glasses of wine will, will give you probably about 200 extra calories and if you're just underneath your calorie threshold then it's going to take you over right so when we're talking about out training a bad diet how much over do you need to be for it to be constituted a bad diet that's a tough one i don't think it is i think that's where metabolism plays a big role well th this is yeah and this is a good point because so I think your point about metabolism is a good point because a lot of people, when they're trying to offset their diet from exercise, will pick exercise activities that seemingly burn the most amount of calories. But one of the funny things is, Richard, I don't think a lot of people actually understand how fast or slow their metabolism Because, you know, we get caught up in this rat race of exercise and, like, 
let's say 20 or 30 different things you can do to speed up your metabolism or things you can do to lose weight. Yeah. But no one breaks it down and does them one by one. Because if you don't change your diet and you just exercise and you do the different types of exercise, what effect does that have on your body? Well, that's true enough. I mean, most people don't tend to look at you know, what they're doing, they're just trying to do as much to make themselves as sweaty as possible with minimum rest they can get. And they think that's the best. Ultimately, from a PT perspective, they need to think about each variable and how it's going to affect the body and over a small period of time, how it has affected the body. Without that, they just always shoot it in the dark. I, I think a lot of it boils down to panic because they've eaten poorly and then they go, okay, I need to do something to offset what I've just done. And that's when they think, I will do the thing that feels hardest, the thing that makes me sweat the most, in order to get rid of it. I think it's as rudimentary as that. What makes me laugh is one of my clients said to me um, last week, she was like, you know, I just need to make sure I sweat more. And then I looked at her, like I've looked at many people and said, do you really think your sweat is a barometer of how many calories you've burned? And she gave me a weird look. And it's like, you know, you're, you're sweating is just down to your body temperature and that's it. And the amount of work you do isn't too much related to that. So person to person, you may sweat a lot more than me. Yeah. But that just, that just means you can't control your body temperature as well as I can. Yeah, or what, what you happen to be doing at that point, your body's not very well adapted to. That's it. So we've had intense training sessions, Richard and I, together, and... By the end, we're both exhausted. However, he sweat a lot more than me. And that's not because he's worked harder than me. It's just the fact that his body temperature, his body can, controls his temperature differently to mine. And I get really cold really quickly, but I can handle extreme heat quite well. So I think that's another misconception that people get caught in and think, oh, yeah, I sweated a lot, so I've worked really well. No, you've just dehydrated your body. Well, it's the same, it's the same problem with, with rest periods because... People want to forego rest periods because they feel like they're not working during that period. But there's a benefit to those rests. Huge benefit. It's, it's always that um, the term that always comes to my mind is diminishing returns. Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good point. With a lot of things in fitness, that term is so valid. Yeah, and then so what happens is when, when people are trying to out-train a bad diet... They'll consistently opt for things that seem to make them sweat more and make them work really hard. So they'll always opt for the spin class or they'll opt for the hit session because those things feel like they're really intensive. They're going to make you sweat a lot because it's hard to control your body temperature in it and it, it makes you feel like you've, you've worked incredibly hard to get to what you're trying to get. So you feel like you're justified. Like we said a couple of weeks ago, in terms of intervals... Most of the time when they're doing HIIT training, they're actually not in the heart rate zone they need to be in. And what's funny about that is when you look at what true HIIT is, you're going to be sick by the time you finish. Yeah, and most people can't sustain that. So what you end up in this is this weird hybrid thing where you push as intensive as you can in your training session. But in the long term, where does that get you? Because what's funny about this is when you look at people who need to consume a high number of calories. So... So going back to the 4,000 calorie day, there are athletes, there are individuals in different sports and there are you know, bodybuilders who are amateur who will eat that, not that specific diet, but will eat that number of calories a day, every day to maintain where they are. 
and that's because their metabolic rate is much higher. So when we're talking about can you out-train a bad diet, it really does boil down to how fast your metabolism is. And that's why when you're a teenager, it's a lot easier to get away with eating poorly than when you're, say, 40. Okay, so before we go any further, we should really break down what we mean by metabolism, because I think it's a term that most people have heard, but they're not necessarily familiar with what it means. It goes over the head. So what we mean by that is, for the minute you wake up to the minute you go to sleep, if you do absolutely nothing, it's a set amount of calories you will burn. What factors variate that number from person to person are obviously your body size, the amount of muscle mass you have on your body, the amount of body fat you have, and how adapted and conditioned you are to certain types of activity. So in the previous podcast where we were discussing steady state and HIIT training, uh, I mentioned that I cycle. So as I said, I cover about 20 kilometers a day. So my body's used to doing that. My metabolism has adapted to that 20 kilometer cycle. If we give Lawrence the job of cycling 20 kilometers a day, every day for a week, he's going to burn more calories than I am because his body isn't used to it. Equally, my body has more muscle mass than say your average person. Lawrence just has more muscle mass than the average person. So we have a higher metabolic rate because muscle mass is a more expensive tissue to maintain. So in order to maintain it on the body, it requires more calories. So you're trying to lose weight, so you think about burning fat, but ultimately you don't want to burn fat, you want to just build more muscle. The more muscle that you build, the more fat you're going to burn naturally because your basal metabolic weight goes up. Women, you would hear in the gym quite a lot say, you know, I don't want to put muscle on. I just want to tone, but toning isn't really a thing. So they want to put muscle on, but they don't want to be bulky. They just want to put some muscle on and lose the fat that's there in its place. And by doing that, they burn the fat because the fat has to be turned into muscle. But the problem you get with that is a lot of people get upset because they weigh more. But in my mind, weight has nothing to do with the overall goal. I feel like weight is a number that people cling on to when they're trying to lose weight. When ultimately that weight, the body that looks best for them, is probably totally off from the number that they expect on the scales. Weight is only really relevant if you're a boxer or if you're in a sport where you require a weigh-in. Yeah. For most, most people, it's sort of an irrelevance. It's a number that people tend to cling to as an identity thing. To clients quite a lot of the time they'll have a set number in their own head as, as a number to reach as a goal point but that's not necessarily where they're going to end up because as time goes on when they burn body fat as Lawrence has mentioned muscle weighs more so as you build muscle tone or muscle muscle size on a person that person then has a faster metabolism has less body fat but might end up weighing more than they originally started at so going back to and I want to stress this point, is when people talk about uh, muscle tone, and we'll get into this in a a few weeks' time, muscle tone is a myth. It's not a real thing. It's a marketing tool. It's It's a terminology that's been made up. It's not real. So when people come to me and say, I want to look toned, I have to figure out what toned means for them because it doesn't always mean the same thing person to person. There's no definition. Someone comes to me and say, I want to get strong, I can apply metrics, I can apply ways of measuring that. Tone is, is more by, by eye, and it's not my eye, it's their eye, if that makes sense. Yep. When we're talking about building muscle, don't be afraid of the fact, and don't think, oh, well, they're just talking about me getting huge and massive. That's not what we're saying. We're saying, 
we're increasing muscle mass and that could be a very small amount of muscle and that tips the scale in your favor in terms of the metabolic rate because most people's me metabolism is way too slow because right at the beginning of this we mentioned 1750 as being a rough sort of medium point for men and women 1500 for women 2000 for men how many women are there out there who are not eating 1500 calories and are struggling to lose weight of course and how many people and obviously there are people who are overeating but if you're only eating 800 calories a day and then you have a day where you go out for lunch with your friends and have a few glasses of wine and have a big meal it's very easy for that meal to be 500 calories right and that's almost your entire day's allowance of food you're going to gain weight if you do that twice a week you will end up slowly gaining weight even though you're barely eating and that's why when we say can you out train a bad diet we're saying, well, what constitutes bad? Because for that individual who's on 800 calories a day, going and out and having pasta for lunch with their friends and two glasses of wine would constitute bad because their metabolism runs so damn slow. But if I've got a athlete who eats 8,000 calories a day and they're going and having the McDonald's breakfast, the pizza for lunch, and the Chinese takeaway for dinner, okay, maybe not the beers, they could still theoretically lose weight. Now that might not be good weight they're losing, but they might come down in weight. Talking about metabolism, one of the things that for a lot of the trainers out there you may or may not do, but when I get a new client, one of the first things we talk about is how fast or slow their metabolism might be and how that's going to affect the training. So what I do is I, I like to see it as variables. I don't change too many variables at once because ultimately, you know, you can do calculations to try to figure out what your metabolic rate is, but I like to see it in action. Yeah, I mean, if you change too many variables as well, you don't actually know which change made any difference. And that drives me crazy. So what I do is I get people to keep the diet exactly the same and then we sit in the training that we're doing a certain amount of times a week and we see what happens over one or two months, sometimes even three. I'm talking more about people who aren't like massively obese. But for most people, you can do two to three months and their body will make some type of change if it's got a normal to slightly faster metabolism. If it's got a slow metabolism, you're not making a dent. But that's one of those things after three months, you'll see, okay, so exercise alone isn't enough. Then we need to start editing the diet. Okay, so with changing the diet, where do you typically start? What are the top things that you know you have that you shouldn't have? You can go from a nutritionist standpoint and assess every single thing in a diet. But for me, I'm a trainer more than a nutritionist, so I don't really care about that. I can make, I can get results nutritionally by just using common sense. Because I don't think most people employ common sense. No, I, I think what most people are trying to do is they're trying to justify what they're doing outside of the gym with the gym in, in typically typical fashion. And you, you're right. So what I, what I tend to do is I try and I, I like to add in first. So rather than try and take stuff away, because that creates this negative association with what they're doing, I add stuff in. So first thing I try and do is get their water content up. That's a good one. Because if you put the water to peak, then you can find out whether genuinely they're, they're, are they overeating or not. The problem I always find with that is, how do you test it? So what I start with is I set them a target of uh, like a litre and a half a day and get them to, to follow that for like a week and see what impact that has, right? Because if you're, if you're consistently doing that for a week, your calorie content might well go down. You might well find that you're actually eating about right and that, that water content is about right. And if that's the case, then I'll start adding things in. So I'll start 
adding foods into their diet. So usually what I start with is protein because protein has a slight thermic reaction, it's beneficial overall. So I'll try and get their protein levels up and I'll usually aim for about one gram per one kilo of body weight roughly. And then I'll, I'll go in for that. And then any major stuff I'm seeing on their like food diary, because I'll, I'll ask them to do it, I'll then track and look at. So with the food diary stuff, a lot of times I want to see what they're doing because if they can't write a food diary for me or they can't send me pictures of it, I question their commitment to really trying to make a change to their diet because they're obviously not willing to show me what they're doing. So how can I really make a change? Because then if they're not willing to be honest about what they're doing, how can I make a change? And obviously if you find something on the food diary like they're eating a cake three times a day, then that's the change that you have to make. But if it's just like, oh, I had a chocolate bar two days in a week, it's not necessarily a problem for most people. That's true. What's funny about that is now I'm thinking about going down another rabbit hole of testing the hydration in a session. The hydration question is interesting because, um, as you know, a lot of times people uh, assume they're hungry when they're actually thirsty. Yep. Right. So one of the one of the key things that I one of the key things that I think is interesting is when you look at most trainers, the thing they always have with them is a bottle of water of some description. Right. That's true. You rarely see someone walk around without without one. Right. But when you compare that to clients, how many clients arrive at a session with no water and they're reliant on a water fountain or, you know, they don't bother? Yeah, a lot of people end up, when they start analysing their behaviours, they realise that the only place they really drink water is in the gym. Yeah. So my next thing would be tracking the hydration by actually getting them to test it at the beginning of the session. I'd be like, take the stick, go pee in it, take a picture of it, give it back to me. <laughs> That's quite demanding though. Because but what if they don't need to pee at the beginning of the session? Doesn't matter. It's but I'll see you in twenty minutes when you can do it. It's the most valid way I can think in my mind to get the accurate reading because a lot of people you ask them the question, how's the hydration? Oh yeah, it's fine. It's fine. But there's a morning period where they have no water, they have a bit in the session, there's none after that, then there's wine in the evening. That is horrible hydration. But in their mind they're counting everything as hydration when ultimately for the listeners out there. You can have other things like tea and other fluids, which, you know, they may class as helping you hydrate, but honestly, it doesn't. I mean, it, it has a, it has a benefit. I mean, a cup of tea is better than having no liquid yes. at all. Yes, but at the same point... I don't want people thinking that they should, you know, that, that tea is, is, is drying them out or something like that. I think that, you know, first thing in the morning, if you wake up and have a cup of tea, right, that's not the end of the world, if, as long as you're drinking water as well. But my question to you... Does tea and coffee have a neutral or dehydrating effect on the body? It overall whoa, has... Whoa, okay. whoa, 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 there, there, right. it's, a, it's a... It's complicated because in, okay, the short, on, in the short term, it's hydrating. If you drink coffee before you work out, you have had a net positive amount of, of, of fluid. But because of the way caffeine works, it then means that it's... Uh, I can't remember the word. It's diuretic or whatever it is. So it, it then forces your system to, to lose more fluid in the long term. So if, if you have coffee and then you go and work out, you've actually had fluid before you go in, right? But by the end of the session, or maybe an hour afterwards, you're net way down because the coffee has, not only have you sweated during the session, but the coffee has also pulled more, more water out, so you have to rebalance with more water. But in the short term, yes, it does. But we're not talking about the short term. Well, I don't know, because... If we take a day as an example... As a net overall day, yes, I agree with you. Okay, so, so then that's it, it's over. There's nothing more to say but, about the matter... So my point is, 
it's hard to find any fluid other than water which actually has a hydrating effect on the body. That is what I'm saying. Here's the solution. Drink the water amount that you're supposed to each day and all other drinks are just added on top. I would query that fact and say they'll need to drink that amount plus an additional amount for everything else they've had during the day. So an extra litre on top of that. If you look at what you've just said and we quantify it, ultimately they're going to be dehydrated by the evening. If not dehydrated for certain periods in the day. Can you agree with that statement? Yes. And ultimately, you're right, you'd have to hydration test in order to see the numbers accurately. But I'd argue that if you're consistent with your fluid intake, you wouldn't necessarily need to check your hydration daily or every session. You could check it, say, every month or a couple of months. But my reason behind checking it on a daily basis or a session basis is because after a month period, you have enough data to say... I had this this morning, this is what my hydration was like. I had that this morning, this is what my hydration was like. I'm more dehydrated in the morning than the evening, so I need to back-end log the hydration. Do you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to really assess the person's day and break down periods when I know they need to not drink water, but guzzle water. We have a general common ground on this. I think the issue, the issue boils down to is how you measure it, because I'm just thinking about realistic for most people no but what you're you're the normal person what you're saying makes sense i'm just hardline i'm hardline in yeah. this situation if i was training someone who is doing something serious like a marathon or an iron man or they were doing a bodybuilding competition or they were trying to play sport at a high level then then the hydration process would be important for those people so for your average person I think just simply starting off by making sure you're getting a decent amount of hydration to begin with is enough to start with. Now, I agree. I totally agree. I think what I was talking about is nitpicking at a point where you have to nitpick. Because yeah. there's, less, there's less things that you're doing wrong. So you need to really assess what you could be doing wrong or what is what are the finer issues in it. Right, so as we've already spoken about hydration, what other aspects, what other things would raise metabolism one of the big ones is sleep you've also got type of training you're doing you've got stress levels and you've got recovery process they're probably your big four what's funny about them is in those four they're kind of so intertwined yeah. so if you think about recovery process that encompasses sleep yeah stress levels Coming from a psychological background, one of the things that I haven't been able to implement, but I feel like I should have implemented, was a scale for just stress day to day. Somebody coming in and like ticking a couple of things which took 10 seconds, and then from there you could have a baseline to go off that. Because stress is a, a really hard one, not only assessing somebody, but also for a person to manage. Because there's so many external factors which could cause stress. Well, I have a stress theory, okay? So bear with me on this. Right, so... Oh, that's a bit deep. So, there are two types of people in the world. Okay. People who drink coffee and people who don't drink coffee. <laughs> All right, I'm with you. Okay, so people who don't drink coffee are the same people who can't handle any stress whatsoever. You give them a small amount of stress, they spend the rest of the day, if not the week, trying to de-stress. 
they want to go to a spa, they need to have a massage, they need to watch something fun on television, they can't handle it, right? And they, the same with coffee, they have one cup of coffee and they're all over the place. The other group of people live off coffee. They can have 15 cups of coffee a day and it doesn't raise their heartbeat one beat. And those people are really good at handling high levels of stress. The big problem with that is they die because they can handle that level of stress all the time. They're constantly under stress. They're constantly, constantly relying on stress to function that when you take all the stress away, they just collapse. And when there's too much stress on them, they just die because there is no middle ground. Those are the two types of people. So when we're talking about stress and stress management, the difficulty is, is understanding where on the Richard's stress scale they would sit. Because if they are really bad at handling stress, they're not coffee drinkers, right? One little bit of stress is enough to impact their metabolism really quickly, but it's like a little blip. So if they have a period of stress like that, it might well cause an impact on their metabolism. But if it's a little blip that's one day, it's probably not going to. On the flip side, if they're really good at handling stress, they might be doing something that's incredibly stressful all the time, but then they display no real outward problem with it because they're so used to handling stress, but it's effectively damaging their metabolism. Now, your scale was quite interesting. I was laughing at the same time. It's quite an extreme scale because I would be on the non-coffee side. But to put it from my point of view, because I don't go to spas, <laughs> I can't handle caffeine because it makes me go up and then I crash. But all of this happens when I don't move. So my theory back to your stress theory is people with a low coffee tolerance and an extremely high metabolism can't handle that type of stress, but they can handle other stresses. And also I feel like you've got, you've pigeonholed stress, which stress in the body to stress outside the body. Yeah, I mean, I'm being reductive, but the, the, the point of it is, is it's about cortisol and it's about how cortisol affects the system. So in flight or fight, obviously cortisol requires you either to run away or fight and attack. If we take you as an example, your metabolism is fast, we're going to say, and you're likely to be quite good at handling active stress. What's funny about this point is, I remember when we were talking about our sleep and we're monitoring our sleep and we're comparing notes. Yeah. You as a high caffeine drinker and me as a non-caffeine drinker, my deep sleep was like four or five times your amount. Caffeine has an impact for definite on sleep quality and this also affects recovery. And this goes back to the stress point is when you've got a high level of stress, when you've got a high level of cortisol in your system, it's really hard to unwind. So when it comes to sleep and sleep recovery, it's just not going to be perfect. So listeners, I don't want to push it in too much, but this goes back to my theory of hydration in the beginning and that I'm slapping coffee and green tea at all of my clients' hands. It's part of the service that I offer. Slap the bad stuff out of your hand. Coming back to the stress element though, it's really hard to do a scale on it because it's an individual's own level. So if you say to someone, what's your stress level like at the moment? They're gonna go, yeah, it's fine, or it's bad today. No one ever goes, yeah, it's got a lot easier. So here's the thing. That's why having a psychological measure which takes 20 seconds plus the hydration scale, perfect marriage. From the hydration, you'd know that they're dehydrated, which means their body's probably under a lot of stress, which means they probably have 
uh, assuming they could probably have higher than normal cortisol levels and things haven't come back to normal. Then you've got the outward gauge of how they perceive this. In four months, I'm going to know them better than themselves. All right, I look forward to I look forward to seeing this coming out. Okay, so let's move this conversation on because I think we can agree stress has an impact here. Right. Yes, but one thing we still didn't really put forward to you guys is one of the biggest things is sleep. And it doesn't matter how much we as trainers are trying to help you, if you can't find a way to sort out your sleep, then that's going to be the biggest issue in the training. It doesn't matter really what we do because sleep is so vital in terms of like the hormone reset. And if your body, if your hormones aren't in the right place, you're not going to get the results. I can't echo that more because it's something you do for eight hours a day in theory, right? That's a third of your day is devoted to sleep. If your sleep is broken, if your sleep isn't deep enough, if the room you're in has got too much light or is too warm or is too cold and it doesn't have the right things or if there's you know there's even there's even stuff now about having wi-fi on while you're asleep having uh, your phone next to your head because it interrupts your brain signals while you're sleeping so turning your phone to airplane mode turning the wi-fi off in your house while you sleep has a huge benefit to you getting better sleep i agree and listen that's a key thing so ultimately just try to find those things that really help because metabolism is a minefield and all of these things we've mentioned are key to figuring out how to speed up your metabolism and get the best out of your training. So obviously the title of this podcast is Can You Out-Train a Bad Diet? But I put it to you that a diet is only a bad diet when it impacts your progress in training. But then, going on that standpoint, that also depends on the speed of your metabolism. So for me as a, an, a good example, you've known me long enough. Yeah. I have an insanely high metabolic rate it is insane so i actually haven't met a diet that i can't out train other than keto but therefore it's not a bad diet because true, true. because i mean let, let's take an example right now we're sitting in a location where you've got four mince pies there's no need to disclose that information but yeah i mean you're not going to eat all four mince pies in one go but who said that <laughs> But it, the point is, is it doesn't have a negative impact. Whereas for most people, the four mince pies is a big problem because their metabolism doesn't run fast enough for them to, to, to them to work out around that. Coming to your point about keto, it's interesting that keto didn't work for you. So going back, my wife has used keto on and off for years and it's had, I've seen the results. It's been amazing. I tried it. I couldn't stomach that level of fat. What what sort of, as an example to, okay, first of all, let's define for the listeners that don't know what a ketogenic diet is. Okay, so ketogenic diets are high fat, moderate protein, low carb. So fats will be in the 70% range, carbs will be in the 10% range, and protein will be in 20% range. What that actually means is it's really hard to find foods that fit in that profile because you end up eating a lot of nuts and avocado as far as I can see like cottage cheese stuff like that yeah I'm a person that the ideal diet for me through trial and error is high protein high veg yeah I mean that, that's to me that's pretty much the standard base point I, I work off of there are some individuals I train who work really well off of a keto diet but 
the thing is, you can't have veg on a keto. No. Because so, of the carb content. Yeah, so the ketogenic diet works because you go into ketosis, which is where you're burning more fats than you are carbs, effectively. And the aim is to stay in that. Yeah, and if you have a high number of carbs, you start burning glycogen, which is what carbohydrates break down to. And equally, if you have too much protein, excess protein becomes glycogen. So if you eat chicken breast, which is high in protein and low in fat, it can push you into glycolysis. So for me, the best way to stay in ketosis was just to fast. Yeah, and I think the other thing as well with the ketogenic diet is is the, the standardized diet that most people follow, whether it's the recommended healthy diet or just you know eating three meals a day and what have you means you're quite carb adapted yes following the keto diet just means you're keto adapted it's it's just the opposite energy system that doesn't mean you've got the flexibility that you need necessarily so the way lawrence is talking about things the fast process puts him into ketosis and then when he eats he can switch into glycolysis and he has the ability to switch between the two energy systems, which arguably is much more efficient. Guys, the diet that I'm talking about more or I prefer more would be like, I said it as, you know, meat and veg, but mainly it's the paleo diet, which is kind of like the hunter-gatherer diet. For me, that's always made the most sense and is worked well for my body because I can keep my calorie count at a certain level even without really counting my calories. And on top of that, because... I've got such a wide range of food that I'm available to eat. I can really pick out the most nutritionally dense but high quality food from that list. The other thing is with keto, you sort of get stuck because there's only certain things that fit that profile. Yep. Uh, so I'm assuming you have a similar issue with vegan diets as well then because obviously with a vegan diet, there's the issue of how you get adequate protein. Which and, is a big issue. And how you avoid overcarbing. And what's funny about that is I understand people's choices behind that type of lifestyle, but there are two massively glaring facts that you've just mentioned. And to date, I can't find a way around it because ultimately you're like you, like we're talking about listeners about trying to out train a bad diet. You really can't put enough food in your system to get the right protein amount. You just can't. It, on that style of diet what I find amazing is I don't know how you follow a vegan diet and do it healthily because the foods that you've got available if you follow it if you follow it in a natural way and you eat whole foods right mm -hmm. what are you actually eating you're eating nuts right you can't have meat you can't have cheese so the only other protein source I can think of is beans and lentils do you remember years ago probably listeners probably like a decade ago we were talking about this and Richard made a list of all the beans and is it lemmings? Oh yeah, we went through this. I remember this. He made a list of all the pulses and beans and the quantity we would need to replicate the same amount of protein as we have now. And it was insane the amount that we would have to eat. It would be popping out of our noses. So that's the problem with a vegan diet is for someone with a high metabolism, they might be fine. But a normal to low metabolism, I don't know how it doesn't spell obesity because of what you're actually able to eat. And then you end up having stuff where, you know, they've got all of those vegan-friendly meats or things that, you know, aren't meat but 
Like yeah. Tesco's talking about they've made a burger, a vegan burger. Yeah, and when you look at it, it's just full of chemicals. And that's it. So you've, you've stopped eating certain things because it works better for your body or, you know, it's better for the environment and it may be better for your body. But Well, we've it, already discussed it's not better for the environment. Yeah, but, but, but then it's almost not. It's not in any way because you're putting chemicals in from just a totally different source. The same things they do to the meat, they're going to do to veg. It's just a different process. And also, now that they're making more of these artificial things which are meant to taste like meat but aren't meat, there has to be processes which they've used to, to create these things which are not natural to the body. Like, how can you say there's meat-free meat? <laughs> how does that make sense? No, I know, I know, I know. Anyway, we'll move away from the vegan discussion. We'll take it back. So, wrapping all this up from the original question. So, Lawrence, can you out-train a bad diet? I think there's a very personal answer. However, no. I agree. Because if it's got to the point where it's, it's actually classified as a bad diet, it's, it's already affected your performance in a number of ways. Yeah, because you're, you're right. Because if the diet you're eating means you have to train to compensate for the diet, it's a problem. It should complement your training. And that's why Lawrence can eat his mince pies and still get performance gains because they have a net, they have a minimal, they have a minimal impact on his progress. And that's because for me, it's more about the rate of my metabolism. It's almost like I need, I need things like that to hit my calories for the day. It may not be the best choice, and I could probably pick something else which was more nutritionally dense, but I still hit my figures for the day. But also, with the way your diet currently is and your training goals, you don't need it to be any cleaner than it is currently. It would be different if someone came along to you and said, you have a shot to play professional basketball in this country. Then at that point, maybe the mince pies do need to come out of the diet. Yeah. But at this point, they don't need to. So this is, this is effectively minimum effective dose. So what changes need to be made to progress you versus what changes should you make and I think most people look too much at what the changes they should make versus what changes they need to make and going back to my original point right at the beginning if your diet is the McDonald's breakfast the Pizza Hut pizza for lunch and a Chinese takeaway every single day you probably don't need to do very much uh, reducing to make a big difference <laughs> yeah. just cutting out the hash brown will probably mean that you lose a couple of kilos in a week I wouldn't say just the hash brown. I'd say cut out a meal, change dinner or something. Let's but, not go too far with these people. Yeah, but. yeah, we're not going in there. One thing at a time. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.